Alright everyone, let's call a timeout. This podcast is proudly sponsored by MIPS, the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students. It's free to become a student member. For more information regarding MIPS student membership, please visit qr.mips.com.au. Our next guest for season two is Professor Declan Murphy, a leading surgeon and researcher, and as we will hear, no stranger to the microphone himself. Professor Murphy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eden. I've welcomed you to the show, but I feel like I'm on your show in a way. We're in your lovely uh, studio equipment here at Peter McCallum. Very uh, expensive and looks fantastic. (laughs) Thanks very much for letting us use it. Not at all. Yes, we do share an interest in podcasts and we uh, started our own podcast last year. So it's nice to welcome you across the street from the university over here to Peter Mac and sit in the GU cast studio. So Declan, for those who don't know you, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you, Declan Murphy. I'm a urologist uh, here at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and uh, you can tell from my accent I didn't grow up around these parts. I'm actually from the west of Ireland originally, uh, but I've been here in Australia for the past 12 or 13 years. We like to start with a few warm-up questions normally, Declan. So firstly, can you take us through your morning? Do you have a morning routine? Every day morning? Well, yeah, so I suppose today was sort of typical. Um, I like to cycle to work, Aidan. I live in Hawthorne East and I work at Peter Mac a a few days a week and Richmond a few days a week. But I love to hop on the bike early in the morning, like about 5.30, and cycle in and listen to a podcast actually on the way in. So it's about a 40-minute ride for me along by the river from uh, home into Peter Mac, as I did this morning. Get in here, have a shower, and uh, uh, Thursday morning, as it is today, is... Busy at the start with sort of meetings, um, 7 a.m. meeting followed by 7.30 multidisciplinary meeting, which is one of our really important occasions of the week. Uh, and then normally it's uh, in theatre all day for the rest of the day. Uh, a couple of more meetings, hop on the bike and go home. Well, hopefully we'll have a few more podcasts for you to listen to in the coming weeks. A second question, what are you listening to or reading at the moment? Is there anything you'd recommend? I like listening to podcasts, yep. I must say, and I think uh, I'm not a I'm not some sort of crazy cycle junkie. So I'm not, you know, as you can t- clearly tell from looking at me, I'm not one of these lycra clad, um, you know, s- beach road Sunday morning seventy k. Uh, I like pottering into work on my bike, um, and it's a really nice uh, open to the day if I can listen to a podcast. So I like podcasts, and I've enjoyed your podcast when it uh, came up on our radar. Uh, I listened to a, a couple of your podcasts, uh, Kate Drummond and Janelle Brennan. Really enjoyed listening to those female surgeons, actually. But typically, I'll, I will listen to uh, current affairs, news, um, uh, sport, uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, in terms of reading, you know, I have to say it's, it's a shame to say, but I've, I've fallen out of the habit of reading a lot. Um, and I would love to make more time for reading. Um, but at the moment, I am reading a book that my wife got me for Christmas uh, about um, Cold War Soviet spying. I can't remember the name of it, but it's very entertaining about this uh, this double agent, um, this Russian guy who defected over to the Brits. And so I quite enjoy reading all that Cold War era uh, spying and all that sort of stuff. And do you listen to music, for example, when you're operating? We do listen to music a lot when we operate. And uh, in here at Peter Mac, actually, we've got a super setup in our theatres. Uh, it's very easy to plug your laptop in and listen to sound in the background. Uh, and over at Epworth, where I work as well, I always have a Bluetooth speaker. So I listen to music a lot, actually. Um, so we always consult. It's a multidisciplinary decision. First thing in the morning, what do the nurses want? What do the anesthetists want? What do the technicians want? And very often, it'll resolve around um, some... Uh, uh, 1980s stuff to indulge my own uh, teenage years uh, or my own preferences 
is listening to uh, uh, loungy techno. Uh, um, uh, I find that quite relaxing, but we will often you know, resort to uh, whatever is on Hot Hits Australia on Spotify. There you go. A, a final warm-up question, a slightly deeper one, this one. Um, as mentioned, you're a surgeon and an academic. If there was one profession outside of surgery and medicine that you could try, what would it be and why? <laughs> Uh, very clearly for me, I would love to have a career uh, in uh, audiovisual communications. I, I really, and from when I, from the get go, I've always had an interest in uh, video. Uh, I must say, and you know, when I was applying to do medical school in, in Ireland um, uh, back in the nineteen eighties, um, I put down the medical schools, you know, the, in, in rank order uh, as my number one option, and my number two option was to do uh, media and communications. This was, you know, pre-internet basically and all that. But I, I've always had a long-standing interest uh, in communications and video, and I could see myself very happily today, actually, you know, working in some sort of audiovisual environment. Well, you're definitely very comfortable in the studio. I can see you've you've married the two roles of surgeon and kind of media uh, very well that I can see. You mentioned uh, your background growing up in Ireland. To understand Declan Murphy, the surgeon, I'd like to go a bit into kind of your, your background, your family. Tell us about growing up in Ireland. So I grew up in the west of Ireland in a small town called Portumna. Uh, so this is a you know, small town of a thousand odd people. And my dad was the uh, local GP. And so growing up in that house was amazing, really, when I reflect back on it, because the very typical practice in that time was the GP surgery in your house. Uh, so that was it. The, my dad had a had a, a waiting room and a consulting room down one end of the house, and uh, pretty much seven days a week there'd be patients coming up and ringing the doorbell. And so I grew up in a in a general practice environment um, uh, in the west of Ireland. So of course that did influence your interest, didn't it? And um, I must say from the get go, I did really admire uh, him as a doctor. Uh, my dad, who's still with us, he's in an aged care home in the west of Ireland, and I also really admired my mother because she was a key part of that practice. She wasn't just running the house with me and my uh, my three siblings, but she was also the practice manager, the practice receptionist, the practice nurse, the, the locum doctor, effectively, at times, because that's what it's like when you run a small you know, country practice in your house. Um, and so the phone's always ringing and she's triaging patients and this, that, the other, without you know formal medical qualifications, but with great uh, life uh, qualifications to do that job. So that was a lovely environment to grow up in. Uh, I, I learned a lot about people uh, by having so many people coming and going from the house all the time uh, and I did become very inspired to want to study medicine uh, because I recognized that uh, the GP that the town GP was a very respected figure he worked very very hard uh, but he was a very respected figure and I understood that uh, a career in medicine would be a very privileged thing to do because uh, us doctors still are to this day usually very well respected uh, in society and I thought that's a very worthy thing to aspire to uh, and that's what I suppose set me on the track to wanting to study medicine. Did you have any seminal experiences in that GP practice, you know, sitting in, watching your father do procedures or particular patients that you remember at all? Not so much sitting in doing procedures, but, you know, a big part of a small country practice like that was doing house calls. And, and from when I was a very, very young age, uh, you know, my father would be heading out after his uh, surgery to go and see four or five patients who couldn't come in, you know. So I would head off with him and sit in the seat. This is from when I'm like four or five years of age. And these are my some of my earliest memories is going on the house calls with my father and all the great adventures, driving out into boggy areas, dogs chasing you, the car getting stuck in the bog, etc., etc., um, And being invited into the house because people, oh, your son is with you, Dr. Murphy, you know, and being brought in for some fresh tea and scones and all that and uh, some kind of remarkable <laughs> country houses you 
would uh, get to visit. So uh, that was certainly, and I mean, that probably doesn't happen quite to the same extent nowadays, but it was very much an important part of uh, the practice that he had to, the practice he had to provide for his patients was going out uh, on house calls. And look, I, I think that was burdensome of course because you know that was almost relentless you know you're working all the time in the surgery and then the, there's always a list of five or six patients who oh, can the doctor call out to see me and he might have been out there twice already that week and you know the, so I, I, I think he did find that stressful and uh, whilst it was fun it was good fun doing that and uh, with my dad uh, it also that combined with seeing uh, what a country practice was like made me think I didn't think I wanted to do that so whilst I thought it was a very worthy career, I thought to myself, gee, I, you know, that's pretty tough going, full on, always on call. And um, uh, I thought whilst medicine uh, was attractive to me, I thought I don't want to be a single person uh, country GP in the west of Ireland because I thought it was just very, very, very stressful. Mm. I think nonetheless, though, it's uh, interesting that, you know, medicine and surgery in Melbourne in this decade compared to being a GP in a country town in Ireland many decades ago, it's still like the, the relentless nature, the hard work that, that's necessary and the relationship with patients, which it sounded like, sounded like your dad had at the time. Yeah, and my sister, um, my sister Sinead, went on to become a GP, my younger sister, uh, in Galway, which is a, a larger city uh, close to where I grew up. Uh, and so a different style of practice, a city practice, but nonetheless, you know, some of the relentless pressures uh, that uh, GPs have and so it's one of when one of my uh, long-standing observations is the how much the role of primary care physicians all around the world is essential and generally speaking how uh, under-resourced uh, primary care is around the world and here in Australia of course totally different but I do see some parallels in some of the far regional um, towns you know where they are so distant from uh, uh, from other um, cities that have big hospitals nearby and you see the the huge uh, reliance they have on local primary care and nursing services um, and we often hear these stories that you know the GP has left uh, he's leaving the we can't get somebody else to fill um, uh, they just find the role so difficult and I can see in that those those busy country practices in Australia some parallels with small town practices in in the west of Ireland where of course we don't have the same tyranny of distance between that small practice and, and a regional hospital which might only be 20 or 30 kilometers away but you see very similar pressures and very similar I suppose disincentives for uh, a young GP uh, for he he or she to set up their practice and maybe start a young family nonetheless on the other hand it can be extremely rewarding you see such a breadth of practice you live in a beautiful part of the world and so on but I think um, we, you cannot support uh, that sort of practice enough. You know, the, the more we can encourage people to do that, the better it will be for that community. You mentioned your sister, Sinead, is a GP in Galway. Uh, did your other siblings go into medicine as well? Were you guys quite close growing up? Yes, small family, uh, close growing up. I've, I've got two other brothers. Uh, I was the eldest in the family. Uh, next down the, the ladder, Brian is a physiotherapist in the west of Ireland, and he still works in the same town uh, as my sister. So he's uh, certainly had an interest in healthcare and sport, I think, all his life, as, as sporty people often do get graduate, you know, gravitate towards that, those sorts of practices. So he's a, a very good physio in the west of Ireland. And uh, my, my kid brother, my youngest brother, who's 10 years younger than me, um, Shane, uh, works in the pharmaceutical industry. He works uh, for Novartis in an oncology uh, practice. So we actually cross paths a little bit here and there uh, in our oncology fields. He doesn't work in GU uh, as I do, but we, we have frequent conversations about uh, disease areas he's interested in, like melanoma, for example. He looks after a lot of melanoma uh, disease areas. And of course, here at Peter Mac, we're gigantic melanoma people. So some of our key opinion leaders here pop up on, on his radar. 
you mentioned the early exposure to medicine really sparking an interest for you growing up as a child. Throughout your schooling years, what else were you interested in and what else did you do? I wasn't particularly sporty, but growing up in the west of Ireland, we all played traditional Irish sports like hurling and Gaelic football. But rugby was probably the sport that uh, I was most, I remain most interested in. The school I went to uh, it was a small boarding school, Cistercian College, uh, Ross Gray. And uh, that was quite, a, it had, did hurling and, and Gaelic, but it was also a small, uh, really subsequently quite successful rugby school. So I, I still love rugby union. I was never terribly good at it, but it's my favourite sport, I would say. And so it's a bit weird, you know, it's such a big sport in, in Ireland and in the UK where I actually spent most of my uh, training years um, that I sometimes feel a bit isolated down here because it's uh, really a minority interest uh, here in Victoria. Uh, but rugby was certainly something we all enjoyed and uh, and, and um, it, through university years, you know, going to rugby matches, rugby tours, etc. Uh, was uh, my main interest. I still retain actually watching rugby and keeping up to date. So Ireland plays Australia in a test match. Are you still wearing the green and white? Yeah, so I have a, a, a kind of a, uh, a various tiers of support uh, that I can provide to various various rugby teams, Aidan. Uh, Ireland always gets the number one tick when there's a match on, but my wife is English, and so I have an English rugby jersey in case of emergencies. I clearly have an Australian rugby jersey. Uh, we got married in South Africa. I have a South African rugby jersey. Uh, I've drawn the line at New Zealand. I don't have a New Zealand rugby jersey, although I have lots of great friends uh, who I work with who are uh, Kiwis. But uh, I love watching rugby. And um, yes, I got to the Rugby World Cup last year, one of the last big trips we did before the pandemic. And uh, I brought all those jerseys with me in case of emergency. Fantastic. Everyone loves beating the All Blacks, don't they? Yeah, it's a very, very, very rare occasion in an Irish jersey. So throughout your schooling years, it sounds like medicine was uh, always on your radar and it was something that you were heading towards throughout your high school years and, and thinking about applying towards medicine uh, in university. Did you waver from that path? No, uh, I have to say uh, as the years went on, I, I had a focus on doing well enough academically that I could get into medicine because like here, uh, like in, in most countries, medicine's quite a uh, competitive entry uh, process so I was focused on it the whole way through never really wavered um, but when the time came sort of year 12 when you have to make those choices uh, about uh, what you want to do I did have also a very clear vision that if I didn't get into medicine I was going to do some sort of communications media uh, qualification so I didn't want to you know do dentistry or science or veterinary medicine things that other people aspiring uh, doctors might have thought I, I, I had a very clear thing uh, that I, if I didn't get into that, no problem. Um, and I think I would have been happy either way, to be honest with you. So tell us about the experience of going to medical school and uh, going through the application process. Did you stay in Ireland for that? Yes. So uh, Ireland has a small number of medical schools and in the west of Ireland, I went to, it used to be called University College Galway. Uh, it's now called National University of Ireland Galway, which is a beautiful small university on the west coast of Ireland in this lovely small city, uh, Galway. Uh, and a very small medical school, you know, when you when you look at the size of other medical schools like we have here in Melbourne, uh, you know, the, the 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 number of medical students in my class was about sixty uh, in the in the whole year, uh, of which about twenty were uh, international students who were great fun to mix with a lot of Asians. Uh, Malaysia, we had strong links to Malaysia, um, and so that was a very small class, of course, in in hindsight, not thousands of people uh, per year. Uh, and it was a very boutique experience then, spending um, uh, six or seven years, seven years actually, as it turned out, uh, in medical school uh, in, in Ireland. And those, you know, we went in, of course, age 18, there was no graduate entry at that time. 
so you're learning all about life for the first two or three years uh, before doing it. But it was a it was a super experience. I really enjoyed uh, the university experience um, uh, doing medicine in the west of Ireland. It was really good fun. College was fun, but um, it did take me seven years to get through medicine. It's interesting you allude to the kind of undergrad versus postgrad model of doing medicine. Of course, we're moving towards the latter Australia, I think, following the American model. Do you have any particular thoughts about starting med school versus 18 as you did versus often students, for example, at Melbourne Uni now would be 21, 22 when they start med? It's the right thing to do. I, you know, I, I think back at that. In fact, I remember friends going through medical school and by the time they get to 20, 21, they've done three years of medicine. It's very clear to them they're unhappy. So I think we're not mature enough to make such a big decision to commit to medicine at that age. And I really like graduate entry. It's got to be the way. What were you like as a medical student? Disastrous. <laughs> it was terrible. I, I feel for my parents. I cringe sometimes thinking. Um, so, you know, went crazy, of course, uh, away from school, away from home. Um, had a great couple of years, really struggled to get through exams. And then got very distracted by um, music, actually. So I... Had a, I liked music, like I always did, of course, growing up. But um, at that time, uh, so where are we? Early 1990s, 1990 to 1996 uh, was roughly when I was in, in, in medical school, 1989 to 1996. The house music, acid house uh, phase was going on. Uh, hip-hop R&B was, was crossing into house music and acid and I, I de- developed a career as a DJ and I, I worked as a DJ um, in a nightclub uh, part-time a uh, couple of nights a week and then I rented a nightclub for a year. I bombed out of medicine uh, completely uh, because we were so distracted, um, three of us running this nightclub which became just tinkering when then suddenly we commercialized it and leased a nightclub for two years and uh, ran massive, massive, uh, mostly university-focused uh, club nights. Um, and a lot of it was based off the back of the house music scene, Acid and acid House and all that. Uh, and then in the summer season, when the, the college had closed, uh, you know, we suddenly realised all, the, all the, the year 11, 12s, you know, thought that this big club scene that the, the university had was fantastic. So we became even more popular. So, uh, and that was quite a distraction. You know, we, we actually made a lot of money, uh, enough to support ourselves and lots of people we employed and have fun uh, working late at night in clubs, uh, buying all the music we wanted to and all the visual effects, which I really enjoyed. We spent a lot of time building visual effects into these clubs. Um, but it meant I totally bombed out uh, of medical school for pretty much two years. And, you know, lots of people said, oh, he's bombed out, you know, and my, it was a difficult time, difficult communication. My, my mother just about can talk about it uh, in hindsight, but it was, I, I cringe thinking about how difficult that must have been for them. But in my mind, I always thought I was going back to back into medicine. I thought, well, I'm not going to do this forever, you know, but this is really good fun at the time. And we, we spent a lot of time traveling in the summer as well. We'd go off to a beat and club over there, play music over there. And uh, it was it was a great lifestyle for, for a couple of years. My my colleagues in medical school were gone off to Africa to spend a month or two. But I was I was, you know, employing people in the west of Ireland running these clubs. Club Chaos was the name of our main brand, K-A-O-S. And uh, thankfully, that was pre-internet days and almost no photos or publicity exist of it because it would follow me around. Um, so I don't know whether I'm not particularly proud of, of that because I think I did create a lot of chaos myself, but it was um, very, very enjoyable at the time. And um, through that period, I said, no, well, I'm not going to do the exams this year or next year, but I'm going back in then uh, to negotiate with the university and say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be serious. And they said, well, you have to, you know, you can't do both. And also their reputational things. These nightclubs are full of drugs, you know, and if someone gets done for drugs in your club, you know, you know, it can affect you. And, um, you know, these were kind of 
more senior medical students or young doctors tapping me on the shoulder as they were in the club with a free pass, by the way, uh, giving me some career advice. But I, I always thought I would go back uh, and um, uh, do medical school, and I did. And I continued to DJ uh, two nights a week for, for my clinical years. I used to do Thursdays and Fridays, Thursday big student night in, in the biggest club there, but I no longer leased the club. I, you know, I worked for a friend of mine, and he would just pay me um, uh, to, to DJ. And so I still really enjoyed that. But by the time I got into, you know, fifth and sixth year medicine, you know, clinical bits were quite busy and you'd be up till three or four a.m. on a Thursday night. And instead of having loads of beer afterwards, I'd just have one or two drinks and I'd potter off. And the the old, the old Declan days were gone because I was taking the medicine side more seriously, but I still managed to enjoy it. And I still to this day enjoy music. And I think a lot of that fed off what we talked about earlier in my interest in audiovisual communications. I, I really enjoyed these clubs, you know, uh, building big themes around the music and uh, all the visuals that we used to do. So that was quite a distraction. It sounds like a great distraction. You spoke about your, your mother's kind of horror at the time. How do you look back on that? Are you glad for having had the distraction? Do you think you came back to medicine with kind of renewed vigour? I did, and it's almost because, as I said uh, earlier, Aidan, I think graduate entry is a good thing. I wasn't mature enough to commit to that or to recognise some of the chaos I was causing and the embarrassment and stress from my parents uh, and others. Um, and I suspect if I had done graduate entry, there's no way I would have been on the same path. So I cringe, to be honest, uh, thinking about that. But I think uh, uh, my parents have, have forgiven a lot of it, and it, it comes up in jokes and family reflections and stuff. And uh, as I'm actually grateful grateful for the lack of a lot of documentation of it back in the early, uh, early mid-1990s when all that was happening but I st- you know, still people come up to you and say oh gee Declan you remember me from the DJ days and you know you used to employ us to give out flyers and work in your bar and all that and uh, I, I smile and I still have a little cringe thinking I, I just you know I feel sorry for my parents but seem to all work out okay in the end. Slightly more philosophical question about that now you mentioned um, kind of bombing out of medical school as you said and as a generalization in medicine I think especially with medical students uh, the F word failure is a huge taboo topic, and and no one wants to fail. Generally, all you know, all medical students have done really well through school and maybe through their undergrad. Um, I'm sure you didn't see it as a failure yourself at the time, but do you think that's something that should be slightly more normalised? Do you think we, in fact, learn more from our failures than we do our successes? I'm almost shocked at the high levels of students we see when I because I examine at the University of Melbourne in the clinical school exams every year, and I'm almost shocked at the ridiculously high level of consistent answers I see coming through these very focused you know very well researched almost super researched you know, how do they how do they have this so exactly right uh, there's actually very narrow range and but the range is very high very high range of excellence and uh, certainly in my days there was a lot more variability a lot more uh, you know people failing and uh, struggling by and then a few high achievers at the top so what does that tell us? I think it means that if you have a graduate entry model, the people who go in and do medicine are very, very serious about it. So I think that's probably good because I think they're happy. They're, they, you know, they're not going to have that uh, immaturity that I think I had and others in my generation had and a bit all over the place. And um, I think you are much more focused, so therefore probably you're happier. But it does mean there's, there's less variability, less failure, I suspect. I, I certainly see less failure. I see very, very, very high levels of excellence and a narrow range uh, in, up there. And... Well, that's probably okay. You know, it might be a bit boring. It might be, you know, but it's probably okay. It is serious business, deciding to do medicine, expensive business, and so it's probably okay. So uh, if we have high levels of academic excellence, it means probably we have people who are enjoying what they're doing, they're studying very hard, and they will turn out to be good doctors and have a good career. But I think it's important to fail along the way in life, you know, but whether, you know, you can do failure in other ways. 
you can fail at sports, you can fail in relationships, you can fail in all sorts of ways. Um, so uh, failure in life is, you know, character building in many senses. I don't think we should be afraid of failure. We learn from failure. You know, lifelong learning is one of our big themes in in a career in medicine, one of the most important things I talk about uh, as I'm kind of mid-career uh, now is is lifelong learning. But I think that includes failures, learning from failures and understanding, reflecting on it and thinking, okay, how can we go forward from here? But I see less of it in the academic side in medicine. I just see high levels of achievement, I must say, and it's probably the graduate entry model and serious people being very focused on what they do. And yeah. So going forward, as you did, you graduated in 1996. Uh, I believe you spent your early years as a junior doctor remaining in Ireland. Tell us about that and, and working in the Irish healthcare system. Yes, yeah, so intern year, resident type year, uh, we did six months surgery, six months medicine, and gee, it was it was grueling. That was back in the days of you know, full on call all the time, 140, 130 hours a day, and especially my medical intern internship. I, I you know was in a small regional hospital, um, a place called Mullingar, a tiny little hospital, like two physicians, two surgeons, uh, sort of thing, and and you're the you're on call every second night, I and mean, you're on for the whole the whole hospital you're seeing myocardial infarctions and all. so I really was I felt very unprepared for uh, I think that level of exposure as a junior doctor was not character building for me uh, it did help me understand that I did want to do surgery mind you uh, I thought I had more aptitude for that and we, we can talk about that but it was pretty grueling you know I didn't enjoy that that first year when I had to do some medicine but then I, I became focused on a career in surgery so the, the positions I had were surgical positions or working towards surgical positions I found that more enjoyable but still the, the, the hours we were working were, were terrible. Uh, we were well paid, so there was some compensation for it because they'd sorted out some contracts. So if you, if you did work 120, 130 hours, you were getting well paid, actually. But it was still pretty grueling. A fair bit of burnout, I think, in people when they do that for a few years. Um, but I did enjoy it, and it made me think, yes, I want to do a career in surgery. So I did my basic surgical training, which was a two-year training program, and everybody did that. You had to compete to get into basic surgical training. And then within that, you decided what higher surgical training you wanted to do. Uh, and and I, I did really enjoy many elements of basic surgical training. And I suppose that's what eventually pointed me towards uh, applying for a career in urology by doing higher training in urology. You mentioned, um, just going back to your, your early uh, year as an intern, the nature of grueling hard work, lots of hours being character building. And obviously it's a balance between building character and, and as you say, going too far and burning out. Do you think we've got the balance right in Melbourne in 2021? I'm not sure exactly. I can tell you, I don't think the balance was right then because, I mean, the burnout's one thing, but I also think there was a lack of clinical supervision as well. I think you know, the, the junior doctor workforce, certainly in the west of Ireland back in the 1990s, were extremely uh, clinically naive and under-supported working in smaller hospitals. It was, you know... It really was. I think that is a bad thing to have that 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 level of exposure for patients and for society, and of course burnout as well. But it wasn't it wasn't a good model. I don't think. And I see as I transition through, you know, working in 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 the UK, uh, the European Working Time Directive came in, which meant that suddenly doctors' hours were being dramatically cut back, back to a you know, pretty much a forty hour week. So this was the other extreme then, and this was coming into law saying, well, you can only work forty hours. Uh, you know, including on call. So, so, and then people get used to that and think, well, okay, it's um, Thursday lunchtime. I've done. My, I've, I've got to leave. And then, well, you know, you can do some surgery this afternoon. There's a there's a very nice operating list for your. Oh yeah, but uh, yeah, thanks. But I've, I've finished. You know, so culturally there was changes in the very short 
working time, which I believe are problematic as well. So there must be a balance in between, especially for craft-based uh, disciplines like surgery, where you do literally need to have hours on the job, I think, to develop that sort of clinical experience. Here in Melbourne, I don't. do we have the balance right? I don't, what's your feedback on it? I, in my team here, um, here at Peter Mac, I think... We probably do. It's not the typical hospital, though. We, we don't have an emergency department. Yes, we have patients in the hospital. We have phone calls. We have on-call. But it's not as grueling as it, as it is in, a, in, a, in an acute general hospital. So I, I have to ta- say to you, I, I don't have a good handle on, on whether the balance is right. I think it's probably close to right. I've listened to, you know, when Kate Drummond talked on this podcast about it, you know, massive busy service like neurosurgery here. Uh, they clearly work very hard. She did in her training, but it's prob- probably about right. I don't think it's undercooked, which was my fear in the UK that people were going to be catapulted out as surgeons with really you know, not enough exposure to the practice of surgery. Yeah, I guess from my perspective and from the perspective of a lot of our listeners who are medical students and junior doctors, it's hard to know. And really the reputation often precedes a lot of the training programs and um, maybe the reputation is worse than the actuality. So it's interesting to hear that perspective from you, particularly at Peter Mac, which, as you say, is a very different hospital to, to most I think if people are out there listening or interested in a career in surgery, it is really important to, uh, well, you're going to be focused and think I'm going to be happy in that, but you have to commit to hard work, even nowadays. Uh, us old surgeons, uh, as you have on this podcast, talking about the old days, uh, and some of that was bad, you know, as I mentioned, being maybe under-supervised and so on, but that you still require a very significant amount of clinical exposure to be a competent and confident consultant surgeon so people who are interested in it, you can't it, it really does require a significant amount of commitment time commitment and clinical exposure to say uh, i will therefore be a competent and confident that means a happy uh, consultant surgeon so so there's no shortcuts i don't think in it it is very important to have that in your mind that that's going to take some time and you know one of our biggest uh, missions that we're on is promoting women in surgery and, you know, that comment I just made to you can be difficult to reconcile with um, a young woman who's finished medical school, very capable, wants a career in surgery, but also uh, wants to have children now. And therefore, flexible training uh, would be essential for her to be able to achieve those goals. And this is one of the most important things that we are trying to achieve. One of the biggest challenges we have is to make sure that we can accommodate that sort of ambition in our workforce. We have to be able to attract support uh, women in surgery, including during their training, which is often during their family years as well. Uh, and that's one of the things that was virtually impossible when I was training. But I, I, you know, I think there is there are cultural shifts that are enabling it. But it's a it's a relentless mission of ours is to try and support women in surgery, young female trainees, attract them in. Number one, make sure that they find surgery attractive because often they may not find it attractive. Uh, and number two, when we bring them in, make sure that we can support them in every aspect of their growth as a person and as a surgeon. And we can't do enough of that. Big mission of mine. Do you think that sort of change has to come from the top in terms of direction and, and you know, c- complete cultural shift? Of course. Yep. It, it totally does because it's very cultural. And it's great to have um, female icons, uh, female surgeons, because this is a surgical podcast, uh, to have female icons we can look to, mentors we can look to, like you've had on this program. But it is equally important to have male icons uh, in this field to say we also are ex- extremely, in- we want to do this, you know not just, uh, you know, we'll, we'll put up with it or whatever. We have to actually lead on it as well and create environments, create cultures where young female, female trainees are attracted into surgery, number one, and number two, that they have an enjoyable, fulfilling experience, which means they're going to develop that competence and confidence as a surgeon 
Uh, but also, of course, because they may want to have kids during that time, get married. we have to be able to build that in. So, you know, less than full-time training, uh, uh, as we call it, LTFT, um, is a thing that comes up in a lot of social media discussions. Do you support LT? Of course we do. You know, if you come to us and you are an ambitious young surgeon and this is your plan and blah, 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 you've got a five-year plan laid out, and but it will include less than full-time or flexible training, no problem. We're, we are open to this conversation and we love attracting in young female trainees into this uh, building for that reason. We want to create that culture and show it in the sort of people we bring in here. Uh, that, that's a, just a relentless mission of mine. I, I literally lie awake at night thinking, are we doing enough to make our specialty attractive for young female surgeons? That's really interesting to hear. And as you say, it's especially great to hear not only from the female surgeons who will be so directly impacted, but also from the male surgeons who can be really powerful champions of change. You discussed before the, the craft of honing surgery and doing your basic training in Ireland. What was it that attracted you to surgery itself and uh, made you enjoy it or, or good at it? So uh, there was a general surgeon called John Flynn, uh, who was a great friend of my dad's. And uh, John worked in a nearby uh, town to ours uh, called Ballinasloe. It's a small town in the west of Ireland. It was about 30 kilometers from my town. So it was the local hospital. Two surgeons, two physicians, small emergency department. Very classic west of Ireland model. And then the bigger hospital is another 40, 50 kilometers away. Um, and he, he, he still is great friends with my dad. They play fishing, they're fishing together and uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, and when I was doing student electives in, in my early clinical years, um, John had said to my father, oh, you know, Declan, uh, during the summer, he wants to come and spend a few weeks with me in the hospital. He's very welcome because it was one of the, the regional sites for the medical school anyway. So I decided to do a, an extra elective and uh, I would uh, drive over to uh, John's hospital and spend a couple of weeks with him. And this was very transformative. So this is a small hospital, two operating theatres, and his operating list was typically, uh, you know, uh, excise some lesion, do a right hemicolectomy, a laparoscopic gallbladder procedure, a blind ureteric stone extraction, a TURP, a blah, blah, blah. Everything. He, he had only recently stopped doing um, fractured neck of femurs, you know. So he was a classic old dyed-in-the-wool general surgeon. And I found I couldn't get enough of this, sitting in the little coffee room with him and what next patient is. He was the most interesting man anyway, John Flynn. and uh, But he, I found that very inspiring. But it was also my first real exposure to going into the operating... I've been in operating theatres, but like being like shepherded in, you know. I was the only medical student and, you know, small theatres. You know, everybody knew everyone. And who's this? Oh, this is Dr. Murphy's um, son from Portumna because they looked after all his patients. And they gave me this incredibly um, intense personal exposure to surgery, which I found very inspiring. I was used to drive home in the evenings, you know, mesmerized by what they were doing, and uh, and also saw laparoscopic surgery for the first time. This was back in the nineteen nineties. He just started doing laparoscopic uh, gallbladder surgery, and so I loved the surgical environment. I loved the start of the case, the end of the case, the chat in between the case. I loved the post-op round. I loved the pre-op round, marking the varicose veins, whatever it was. Uh, I loved everything about it, and and that few weeks for me absolutely crystallized my direction of travel and that was surgical career and I must say every other moment after that that I spent on a medical award or on the obstetric ward or on the psychiatry ward w w became incredibly uh, tedious for me I just realized that I could never sit there at the end of the bed with a professor of neurology pondering I couldn't do it. I couldn't, and then go on to spend another hour with the next patient. I was fidgeting. So that's okay. I think we all find that. And, and you can see that. You can see people, and that's what's lovely about medicine. You know, you're going to find these niches. You're going to say, well, pathology, I love pathology. You know, radio, you, you find your feet. You know, spend those few years enjoying those electives, listening to the people around of you. But you can be very, very, very influenced by those sorts of people that you meet. 
So I'm very aware of that. I'm very aware of that, that he influenced me. And there have been a couple of other key influencers in the following few years that pushed me towards urology as well. So I think that's another theme for us is to recognize that the people who are around us, whether they are medical students or young trainees or international fellows uh, coming over uh, in their early part of their careers can be very, very influenced by what they see and what they hear and what they experience by coming to um, a firm like ours, because it's, 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 very, it's been very career defining for me as well. So John Flynn, yeah, John is still um, uh, well and alive in the west of Ireland, only kind of recently retired, still does some examining in his 80s, uh, but he, he really pushed me on that uh, career. He inspired me effortlessly to say, right, this surgical theatre environment is going to be for you. So tell us about following that path then and uh, eventually um, travelling to the UK, I believe, for your urological training um, and particularly with those couple of mentors that you've just mentioned as well. So... Urology training was quite competitive in, in Ireland. Uh, typically, they would only accept one person or sometimes zero people onto the urology training program. And, and the, the, it was called the numbered system. So each training position had a number. We were part of the UK and Ireland system. So you would only be able to take a person into training if somebody was exiting training. So sometimes that meant, well, in you know whatever year, uh, uh, t- 2001, there would be no entry and you might have three or four or five or six you know young wannabe uh, urologists or indeed any sur- all surgical specialties were the same queuing up and you might have done a year of research and this and that and year uh, general surgery we all did a year of general surgery uh, hanging around and I could see ahead of me that the year that I was going to be most competitive up against a couple of other people there would be zero numbers so I uh, my choice was either um, do another year of research or do another year of something else and and apply the following year when there'll be, again, more people actually competing as well, there'll be an extra year of people, uh, or uh, move overseas and train somewhere else. And I decided very quickly, I'm very comfortable going overseas. I, I thought, you know, that's going to be a good thing to do. I had no qualms. Uh, so I decided to apply for training in London, uh, the big London training rotation. Never we, never been, never worked in London before, just ever been there for, you know, s- social stuff, rugby and all that. Uh, but I decided to put in an application. And again, it's extremely competitive over there. But, uh, you know, my training was good in Ireland. And um, so I was well-recognized and ranked very high and got onto the, the London training program. So I was very comfortable with that. I said, yeah, great. I've had some good training in Ireland, but I'm going to commit to a six-year higher surgical training in the UK, South Thames, South London. Uh, London was split into North Thames and South Thames. Uh, and so that's what I did. I joined uh, the, the UK uh, training rotation. Uh, when was that? 2011 or something like that? Uh, sorry, 2001. Gosh, decade out. Ballpark. Like that. Moved to London. Uh, and my, my, my um, uh, hub hospital was Guy's, Guy's Hospital, Guy's in St. Thomas's. And the rotation took us down to the south coast and back. But that was a really enjoyable uh, period, doing surgical training in London. What were the particularly challenging aspects of, of that time of your life? The, well, relocating, you know, yep. was, was uh, quite a big deal. You know, pack up a car and, and uh, get on the ferry and drive over with your belongings and rent an apartment uh, in Brighton because uh, I started out on the south coast. Uh, usually you'd spend a year, uh, a year or two in, the, in the, the, the regional hospitals, but these were big hospitals compared to, you know, Irish hospitals, uh, big city, big cities like Brighton with a big urology unit, you know. So that was exciting, but it was a bit, little bit nerve-wracking. Um, and one of the things I was self-conscious about was my Irish accent, actually, because it didn't take long, you know, you've just been there for a few weeks and secretaries are saying, I'm sorry, what was that you said? <laughs> or patients are saying, um, I, I, I didn't get the, the last bit. So I realized I'm speaking too quickly. 
I've got to slow down a bit. And I became quite conscious about my Irish accent. But I had a bit of a I had a bit of an epiphany moment, I remember, about six months after I started working in Brighton. And we used to have a really fun, busy urology clinic on a Wednesday afternoon and we'd have little dictaphones with those little mini cassettes. And then when we'd all finish in the clinic, you know, seven or eight of us would pile back into the uh, secretary's office, the big pool, and and we would uh, leave the machines back. Uh, and then one day, you know, uh, the mach- we were dropping the machines back and uh, two or three of the secretaries were trying to grab my machine and uh, and uh, there was a bit of a funny scramble and, and the other trainees were and consultants were laughing at this and I uh, one of the secretaries said do you know do you know what this is all about and I I had no idea well I was a little bit embarrassed I didn't know what was going on and they said oh well we all want to we all want your tape Declan we all, we all want to do your letters we want to type your letters I said oh hey, why is that and they said we love listening to your accent so I thought and I said, well, really? And they said, yeah, we love listening. You do nice letters, but it's, oh, we love listening to, oh, to be sure, to be, oh, just that, and blah, blah, blah. they all having a go at me. But but they liked my accent. So I didn't anticipate that, so I thought. And then they said, and also, have you noticed, you know, when you're trying to, to book a CT, have you noticed when you go to the radiology department, you, you always get the CTs done? And have you noticed that? I said, well, not really. They said, yeah, because, you know, you go down to the radiology department, there's an urgent CT, inpatient needed, and you're the junior registrar, so you go down and say, oh, hello, it's uh, Declan uh, Murphy here from Urology. Can I organize an urgent CT? And have you have you noticed you always get... Uh, I said, yeah. This. And have you noticed they say things to you like, I'm sorry, what was that? Who was it for? Where was the patient? They always understand you. They just like listening to your accent. So all these little stories, it was very interesting, made me think, do you know what the... The accent's not... Th- and I actually began to ham it up a bit. And now I'm on the phone <laughs> trying to get a CT. Ah, oh, sorry to trouble you. It's Declan, you know, blah, blah. And so I, it was actually quite interesting for me because it did help me settle a bit. My Irishness, instead of be, being something I was a little self-conscious about, I began to realise, do you know what? They quite like the Irish over here now. This is long beyond the years when the Irish were going over bombing London and so on and the Irish get strip-searched every time you fly through Heathrow. No, 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 no. Because there was a new... This was just post-9-11. There was now a whole new bunch of terrorists out there. The, they, the Irish were never going to blow blow ourselves up, you know. And so uh, it was very interesting. I think there was a very strong period of acceptance of the Irish around that time, which um, wasn't the case in the 1970s and the 1980s, but it was in the 1990s. And I realised that, you know, you can play on it. So um, I do slow down my voice because when I speak quickly I am difficult to understand especially for patients who maybe don't speak English as a first language but but that was an interesting first year because it, it was I remember that period very well I remember the secretaries very well who said that to me and it made me feel good it made me think you know what you know, that don't I was trying to hide my accent I was literally you know, not a stupid idea you're as Irish as they come and even here 25 years later uh, clearly I'm very Irish uh, my, my accent is softer for, for various reasons but um, it's not a bad thing well, uh, I'm sure the listeners of the GU cast also love hearing the dulcet tones and hopefully the listeners of our podcast do too. Um, you mentioned that your wife is English. Did you meet her while you were training in London? Yes, she was an anaesthetic trainee. So, you know, classic sort of relationship thing. She was training down in the south coast as well, uh, a small other city called Worthing. Beautiful city, great fun. Um, so she was the anaesthetic trainee and I was the urology trainee and we used to do lists together. Yeah, it was great. She'd be putting the TUR patients to sleep up the top end and I'm down the bottom end doing a TURP and uh, uh, love blossomed from there. Has it been good to have someone in your life that I guess from a, a medical perspective can often appreciate a lot of the challenges that medicine and surgery present and can really know that from the inside out being a doctor themselves? 
I tend to just keep work at work, to be honest, you know, so uh, while she understands the pressures in clinical life, of course, um, you know, I don't talk about, you know, work much at home. I like to go home and play with the kids and not uh, not be worried about that, even though phone calls come in and this and that. But uh, it's helpful to, have, of course, have someone who understands the pressures, uh, the pressures in clinical ac- academic life, you know, because it's not nine to five. So where did Melbourne come into your training? So towards the end of my training in London, uh, it was very clear I could work in London, you know, and and that guys, they were very keen to have me there as a consultant, but I was very keen to do an overseas fellowship. So a couple of years uh, previously, um, a couple of my very good Irish friends, uh, both urologists, had both spent some time in Melbourne, um, a guy called Paddy O'Malley uh, and a guy called David Boucher Hayes, who are both now very successful urologists back in my home city in Galway in the west of Ireland. And David and Paddy, Paddy, uh, David first, then Paddy had come down to Melbourne and done a fellowship in urology at the Royal Melbourne Hospital um, with a fantastic old urologist, one of my great mentors called uh, Tony Costello. Uh, he would like me calling him old. He's not that old. He's a, he's a very active uh, guy in his early 70s, only recently uh, stood down. Um, and this repu- this fellowship had a great reputation, a year with uh, Tony uh, down in Melbourne. Uh, and also around that time, he had started, uh, he had just introduced robot surgery into Melbourne. That was 2003, the very first uh, Da Vinci robotic procedure. Big news, you know, and he was well ahead of the game on that. So you could come down here and get some experience using this. Now, we also had experience in London. We had put our first robot into guys in 2004. But I was scheduled to do a fellowship around 2007. So I thought Melbourne would be great for all sorts of reasons. I'd been here for the Rugby World Cup and it was a fantastic city. Uh, so I decided to um, uh, apply to come down here and do a fellowship. So we came down here mid-2007, uh, and at that time, it was, you know, interesting times for robotic surgery. It had been around for six or seven years, and now, you know, big, big, big series coming out saying, right, this is clearly going to be the, the state-of-the-art in prostate cancer. So I came down for a fellowship, but actually benefit was that I will get some high-volume experience with a big leader in the field with Tony. Um, and also, we had just had our first baby. Uh, Kean, my eldest son, uh, was born um, in February. 2007 so we kind of packed up in London uh, and came down here in June with this tiny baby learning how to be parents and had a fantastic year from mid-2007 to mid-2008 uh, doing a fellowship at uh, Royal Melbourne which brought me to Peter Mac a bit as well uh, and also to Epworth Richmond uh, but a great year growing up as parents as well now I, and we had a clear path though you know even though it was fun being here you know Lisa was continuing her anesthetic training in London and I had a consultant job lined up at guys they were very keen to have me back uh, so we clearly were going to go back and wave goodbye to everyone. And that was that was clearly the plan. But it was interesting. That was also around the time of the global financial crisis that actually happened while we were here, uh, the banks collapsing and all that. So when we went back to London, it was full on recession, actually just kicking in. And it was a bit, it was kind of difficult times, plus terrorism, which kind of never went away. But, you know, London bus bombings, tube bombings, you know, the, it was a tense time in Europe uh, around that time. So uh, we weren't like unsettled. We had settled back in. I got this consultant job, but Australia was calling, you know, and, and Peter Mack especially had decided it was going to invest in a robotic surgery program. Uh, and Tony had uh, found some donors, as he often does, who said, okay, this seems to be popping up in the private system. What about the public system? And they then Tony uh, convinced uh, three uh, very, very good philanthropists uh, who had some background in prostate cancer to tip in the money to set up a robot program at Peter Mack. But they needed somebody to drive it. So that's when the phone calls came to say, we've got the money, we're going to start a robot program at Peter Mac. Um, uh, we would like you, know, you to come and run that because you're academic and you, you, you can do the surgery. And it was, of course, very nice to be asked, but we still 
that wasn't really the plan. I was thought, well, I'm going to work in London in a big London hospital, and my wife's from London, and she's a big Chelsea supporter. She wants to. She said, I don't care where we live as long as I can get to Stamford Bridge every second weekend. <laughs> so um, that was always the plan. But you know, between the global financial crisis, um, general mood in London, terrorism, uh, and meanwhile Australia, no recession, you know, no terrorism. Um, uh, it, w- it was something we thought about, but I, I really hadn't committed until uh, I got an email. Uh, again, to say, not just are we putting a robot in there, but uh, the Victorian government and Peter Mac have announced that they're going to build a $1.1 billion cancer centre in Parkville. And I remember that. That was May 2009. So I'd been back in the UK for almost a year, uh, and I was due to be in the US at a meeting later that month when I'd be bumping into all the usual Australians, Tony and everybody, and they'd forward me this press release saying, and at the time you couldn't get money for anything in London, financial crisis. Uh, they said, we're going to invest $1.1 billion in a brand new cancer centre. It's beautiful. You know, and so that, w- that, that eased my concerns because I thought, well, Peter Mack, it's a small hospital. There's almost no prostate cancer. There's almost no prostate cancer surgery. You'd be going in there from scratch trying to build an enormous programme. Um, but I thought, you know, billion-dollar cancer centre, all the valuable research could be expanded more into prostate cancer. Uh, and so that tipped me over, and I said, yep, I'll come back down. So that was the plan. Came back um, January 2010. I'm definitely interested to hear more about the work that you're doing at the moment, um, and definitely in terms of robotic surgery as well. But I did want to ask, you, you've worked now in three healthcare systems, the Irish, the, the British, and the Australian. How do they compare to each other and what have you learnt from those different experiences and different systems? Nowhere is perfect. Everywhere is challenges. You can see good in some and bad in some. If you could pick them all out and kick out the bad bits, you could create a great system, but it's an enormous challenge doing that. But, you know, some reflections I have. UK has pretty much universal health care. Uh, the NHS is, is really a great system, but it's very expensive. Um, and now it's difficult, the population's ageing, they've had a lot of cutbacks, and they've set some very high standards that will be difficult to maintain, I believe, uh, in coming years. But nonetheless, it is a super system, really good, uh, universal healthcare. Ireland and Australia has universal healthcare, but also a large private health system, and I, I think that's a good model. I actually think it does take the pressure off, because it's so difficult to provide extremely high healthcare across the whole domain, just out of government purse, you know. And so I think some sort of private health insurance or some sort of employee employer support for people does take the pressure off a bit. And I can tell you, I think the system in Australia is fantastic. It's a lot better than it is in Ireland, especially in primary healthcare, where I see my sister working. You know, she has enormous difficulty referring a patient for simple investigations like an ultrasound. You pretty much have to go into the hospital, into the hospital clinic. It takes a year to get in there, etc. Whereas here, uh, GPs are very enabled to be able to organise a lot of investigations to allow them to make a diagnosis, to do a lot of triage, and then refer on if they need help. And I think access to very high quality imaging in primary healthcare and high quality pathology is a big enabler, and it's one of the really, really, really good things about the Australian system, actually. But uh, the way we work, we tend to work as surgeons here. We tend to work uh, part-time public, part-time private, because most surgery is in private. In fact, vast majority of prostate cancer, I'm, I'm a full-time prostate cancer specialist, is in private. You know, 75% of all prostate cancer surgeries are in private. So if your interest is in prostate cancer, uh, your expertise is in prostate cancer, your research interests are there, well, then it's pretty much essential that you have some presence in the private health system because that's where the vast majority of the uh, the patients are. But I really enjoy working across both systems. I think it's a very fulfilling career uh, and we enjoy being able to bring patients in and out of Peter Mac even if they want to have their surgery at Epworth uh, I really enjoy bringing them through here for imaging or trials or back in here for uh, more systemic treatment and so on uh, and it's certainly very enjoyable professionally to to have um, a, a public practice and also a private practice. 
you've mentioned your specialization in prostate cancer and particularly your work in robotic surgery. Is robotic surgery the future that everyone seems to be talking it up to be? Is it the future not only of urology but of many or all surgical specialties? Uh, it definitely is for any surgical specialties that are you know remotely complex. I think that's very clear. So uh, laparoscopic surgery, of course, is fantastic. But as we become more and more ambitious and want to do more and more complex procedures in a minimally invasive fashion, there are limitations. And you know, really talented surgeons who work very hard can do amazing things with straight sticks, as we call them. Um, but if you want to do a lot of reconstructive surgery, you know, suturing, uh, which is a really wristed movement, actually, it's more difficult uh, doing it with straight sticks. And I did, used to do a lot of laparoscopic surgery uh, using straight si sticks. I used to do a lot of prostatectomies, pyeloplasties, and so on, which require suturing skills. But let me tell you, being able to see in 3D the two key advantages, we have incredible vision with these 3D uh, systems, plus having wristed instruments that allow you to operate like really deep in the pelvis and do suturing uh, is incredible enabled by the robot so it's just the way it is so you take that into other disciplines then and say well what about doing rectal surgery or complex gynecology complex endometriosis surgery what about doing complex upper gi surgery you know it, it certainly does it's an enabler of doing more complex uh, mis and also from a training point of view it's in, it's it's it really are, there are some specific features about uh, the da vinci robot the system we the main system we use um, which makes surgical training safer and better and that's for example having a dual console system uh, as we have here meaning that we've got a second console you know a whole extra console if many hundreds of thousands of dollars worth so you've got a trainee looking at the same 3d view with the same controls and you can flip the controls back and forth. You can draw on the screen and say, no, don't cut there. Let me show you this bit. I'll do this bit for you. You do that bit. Instead of like, you know, being in open surgery and you know, someone's actually cutting and uh, you then fix it up um, is, is incredible. Plus the virtual reality simulator that we have as well means people can spend hours and hours acquiring those skills outside the operating room and then come in and do them on a dual console. So the robot is, is a great enabler across the spectrum in prostate cancer, in, in, in all complex minimally invasive surgery. Uh, but it's expensive. Uh, so uh, that's still a challenge. Having predominantly a monopoly provider has kept costs high. Um, so we've had to be sensible about choosing which procedures we, we uh, explore using the robot. But some things are just like obviously done with a robot. And for us, like prostate cancer, most kidney cancers, most small kidney cancers and so on, uh, we'll never go back from that. It's just a much better way to do surgery. And it's also much better for teaching this next generation of surgeons who are listening to this podcast. In terms of supporting your uh, robotic surgery work, you're also a very keen academic, a world-leading researcher and a, a professorial fellow here at Peter Mac. Tell us a little bit about how your research informs your clinical work and for our medical students and junior doctors listening, would you say research is essential to, to their practice? Well, research is certainly essential to medical practice and medical progress, and that's no less true in, in surgery. Uh, now, for individuals, there's some expectations to know something about research or to have an interest. And in fact, you know, for example, in urology here in Australia, it's very competitive. Uh, so for people to be successful in applying to get into urology training, they have to boost their CV. That means you, you have to do research. So we don't like the fact that you have to do research. I prefer to have a model where people who are genuinely going to continue research careers, uh, we could invest in them and get them a PhD and, and blah, blah, blah. But it's just the way it is. This market forces mean that your CV is going to be much better if you come into a research job for a couple of years, do a PhD, write a lot of papers with us. Um, but n n having said that, I, I have found being able to have a research career, an academic career, an incredibly fulfilling part of my professional career, my working career as a, as a urologist. 
And I think um, my, I have a few sort of lifelong lessons I would share with people. In fact, I'm just, I just turned 50 years of age recently, so bang in midlife crisis, mid, mid-career mode. And um, two years ago, uh, when I was visiting professor at the University of Oxford, we've, we've trained uh, one of their very good surgeons, Alistair Lambs, did a year of fellowship with us, and now he's a consultant in Oxford. And his boss, Freddie Hamdi, he's a great friend of ours, a very eminent uh, prostate cancer researcher invited me to go there and spend a couple of days as visiting professor and I was asked to address their surgical grand rounds on the theme of avoiding obsolescence as a cancer surgeon so I had this great opportunity to think about you know what are my tips you know halfway in halfway along the career Uh, and look one of the really important themes and I shared this in my talk was I I went back to my surgical logbook when I was a surgical trainee in Ireland when I was doing my two-year basic surgical training that we spoke about because I still have that logbook uh, and I I, uh, I took out a few grabs of the the opening pages and the operations we used to do and let me tell you none of those operations happen anymore uh, doing breast cancer surgery as I did at that time six months on an academic uh, prof- professorial breast cancer unit uh, you look at all these procedures that we were doing this is back in the the late 1990s uh, early 2000s those operations don't happen anymore. Um, mastectomy and auxiliary node clearance. No, no. Every single one of those patients, if they were diagnosed today, would be having a biopsy, targeted therapy, uh, lumpectomy, radiotherapy, etc. Instead, we're doing all these mastectomies and auxiliary clearances. So uh, you can take that in every single surgical discipline. So there's a very important theme there, uh, which translates all across surgery, which is you must have lifelong learning uh, as a, a, a fundamental part of the way you work so whether that's research or academic or cpd or whatever but understand that whatever you're doing at one particular moment in time is likely to be obsolete 10 years later or 15 years later or 20 years later so this comes down to making decisions about fellowship training or subspecialist interests and so on and, and that's one of our big themes here we have a very successful fellowship training program which in other words people who finish their surgical training want to spend a year before they come out as a consultant and do specialist training and a lot of them will say, I want to do a robotic prostatectomy fellowship. You, you, you people do hundreds of these operations and uh, you've got a great reputation. So uh, I want to do robotic prostatectomy fellowship. So we, we don't do that. But there are lots of these fellowships. We do a GU oncology fellowship. So yes, you get to do lots of robotic surgery, robotic prostatectomy and partial nephrectomy. Um, and that's a technical part of it. But we're providing a fellowship that gives you skills to be still relevant, to avoid obsolescence, as my talk uh, said, uh, 10 years from now. So what does that mean? It means that you're going to understand about prostate cancer. You'll understand about kidney cancer, about multidisciplinary management, about imaging, about patients, about patient-reported quality of life. And at that particular moment in time, perhaps a robotic prostatectomy is a very good procedure to offer many of these patients and yes let's make sure you select your patients correctly and counsel them correctly and do a beautiful job as best you can for those patients but understand that in 10 years time that patient might not be having a robotic prostatectomy so if you've hung your coat on only knowing about robotic prostatectomy guess what you're, you're going to be obsolete and our patients know that as well we, we now have very high levels of health literacy all around the world especially here in australia you know the patients who come to see us most of our patients our second opinions have already had a diagnosis of prostate cancer and they've been given some advice, but they know they, they, they're they going to go and do their own research. They're going to speak to people. They're going to do a lot of Googling. And they'll understand that it's good to go and speak to someone who's a full-time prostate cancer specialist uh, just to make sure that the decisions they make will be decisions that they will live comfortably with. Um, so this, if you only know about robotic prostatectomy, then you're not going to have the, the ability to perhaps talk about the the topics this patient is going to present to you, uh, like, for example, subtleties in uh, imaging and, and uh, pathology and so on and so forth. Be able to answer questions. I've, I've searched this paper. I've read this thing. I've read this thing. Yeah. So I think the most important thing to avoid obsolescence is to pick areas of 
medicine or surgery, urology, and different disease that you're very interested in, that you find interesting, and devote your time to becoming very expert at that disease area. Now, within that, as a surgeon, obviously that means make sure you, you there's a surgical craft that you're excellent at, that you're going to have, have competence and confidence to do well for your patients. But don't only focus on the procedure. You must you must stay very invested in the disease area. And if that's stones or, you know, benign prostate enlargement or prostate, whatever it's going to be, make sure that's, that's what you focus on. So oncology, so uh, fellowship training needs to be not a technique-focused thing for surgeons. It needs to be a disease area focus, at least for us, those of us who work in a cancer environment, because multidisciplinary care is so important. It's really interesting to hear you talk about the commitment to lifelong learning. You're certainly not the first of our guests who's discussed that, and I think it's really important really in any career in medicine um, to, to have that drive to keep learning. One of the final topics I want to touch on is a little bit closer to home here at the Time Out podcast and that's to bring up your own podcast the GU cast um, as I mentioned we're in your lovely studio and using your beautiful equipment today. Tell us about how that podcast came about and what purpose it serves both for you and Dr. Epen who you co-host with but also to, to your audience and the community at large. So we, we have an interesting communication. I always have. It goes back to, as we chatted earlier, about my uh, the alternate career I never had uh, working in media and communication. So I've always enjoyed exp- you know, having that interest. And it does deploy into the academic side of things because then we won't just write a nice paper. We will make a nice video to go with it. And that was always the thing we did until social media came along. And then we became very early adopters of social media very early on and um, realized that some platforms were going to be very useful, actually, as professionals. Other platforms are going to be useful just for family or social life but Twitter in particular for us um, eight nine years ago you could see was going to be a big tool for journalists for news journalists and also for um, journals and others so I, I you know became quite involved with Twitter and then I developed um, you know I, I work with a lot of journals and uh, the BJUI the British Journal of Urology International um, uh, recruited me as an associate editor to look after social media back in 2013 or thereabouts when my old, uh, one of my great mentors, Prokar Descupta from Guys, became editor-in-chief. So we recognized that this is going to be fun and we're going to develop a strategy for a major journal uh, in how we use these social media tools to disseminate content and also engage with readership. Um, so we've enjoyed doing that and enjoyed YouTube and, um, and blogging uh, and, and ways in which we can communicate out professionally and with patients and so on over the past decade, I would say to you. And then in the past two years, it became very clear to me that while blogging was a very big uh, platform, that's what everyone was talking about back in 2012, 13, uh, now podcasting is the big middle ground. It's a big place where this stuff is getting discussed. And I think when Spotify really invested in um, podcasting two years ago, that was because they could see the direction of travel. And why is that? We've talked about it on GUcast. You know, I, I think um, mobile phones with all the apps that are in them with the uh, podcasting are a key enabler. Cars with their mirroring systems, air, airplay and all this sort of stuff. So instead of driving to work in the morning and listening to the news or talk radio, people are, you know, they, they've got their podcasting thing open there. They're listening to what they choose with no advertising, etc. Exercise, you know, AirPods, you know, there's ways in which it's easier to listen to a podcast now than it was four years ago. So we recognize that direction of travel like we did with social media, uh, Twitter and all that eight or nine years ago. Uh, and I began to listen to a lot more podcasts. So we thought to ourselves, oh, we should we'll start a podcast. You know, we'll give this a go and see how it is. So it was just before the pandemic we made that decision. 
And in fact, at that time, I recall here at Peter Mac, you know, we, we've had lots of international visitors come through this place, you know, visiting professors in town for something else. They'll come into Peter Mac, sit at the MDT, spend some time with our team. And I thought, gee, you know, we have great chats with these people. If we did have a podcast, we, we would do a podcast. And then you, you keep it, you know, and you disseminate it. And uh, wouldn't so-and-so enjoy listening to this famous uh, urologist from UCSF? She's just come over for a few days, but she's really interesting. We'll do a podcast with her. So we had a few uh, reasons to think about it, but I, I thought I think it was because I could see the direction of travel for podcasting was about to be enormous uh, in uh, in every domain, including in our professional lives. Um, so we decided to start GU Cast as as a podcast, predominantly focused on GU oncology, but all things urology, all things surgery. Um, and so myself and uh, Renu Renu Epen, fantastic urologist uh, from Peter Mac, um, uh, decided to co-host this and set it up, which we did exactly a year ago, pretty much exactly a year ago. Um, and look, it's been great. We sort of said to ourselves, we'll we'll commit to doing maybe one of these every two weeks, and the theme is generally. Uh, geo oncology or urology but of course the pandemic hit and and suddenly po- podcasting became even more uh, of a focus because now you can't go to meetings and people are struggling to catch up with stuff and uh, podcasting began booming 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 and we were just in the right spot so now we've got many many thousands of downloads every month most of them from outside australia uh, and great feedback and it's been very enjoyable um, we've, we've pretty much taken January off for a break, but we're about to go back again. And uh, instead of doing one every two weeks, we've on average been doing at least one a week, sometimes two a week. And um, it's been very enjoyable. It's been effortless. It's been fun. It's been a way of engaging with colleagues. We've had patients on the show. Uh, we showcase our research in it. Um, and it, it's, it's been really fun. And um, it's, it's been fun having you in here today using our stu- little studio equipment as well. Plug to Rode, by the way. We use a Rode a podcaster suite called Roadcaster Pro. And Rode are a fantastic Australian company. They've got huge expertise in in audio, in, in microphones. They're kind of very famous for all that, but they make this beautiful podcasting studio that we invested in that means it's easy for us to do what we want to do. Yeah, it's fantastic to be in here. We're at the time out, well supported by the Surgical Student Society of Melbourne, but I must admit uh, your equipment here may be a vision for the time out in the future. For sure. Think big. Exactly. In terms of social media, you just mentioned some of the power of it. For medical students and junior doctors, as well as the power, there is talk about some of the risks associated with it. Do you have any advice for those people? Yeah, we've written a lot of papers about this over the years, actually, because when we started getting interest in social, interested in social media back in 2013, 12, we, we actually wrote a lot of papers uh, on this topic as the field developed. And some of them were based around these concerns that you can get caught out, actually. It's very real. So uh, we wrote a paper in the BJUI back in 2014 or 13 called Engaging Responsibly with Social Media, which covered a lot of this. And then at that time, a lot of the international conferences that w- who would run core courses in parallel, um, uh, specialist courses began to say, oh, can you run courses on social media? So we ran a lot of courses on social media and a whole section of it was always about, you know, engaging responsibly. And what we didn't want to do is say, don't be afraid of social media. We just wanted to say, you know, just if you're not familiar with this, just be careful about that thing you post. And there's lots of great examples that we, we show. We've updated that since. We've written a couple, a lot of more papers about this. We wrote a paper about um, uh, using social media to amplify conferencing content, very highly cited paper. And we updated our uh, European Association of Urology guidelines on social media in European Urology, which is a very major journal. Uh, again last year so there you know there are guidelines out there that's what i'll say to you and everyone's got them student bodies have them medical regulators have them journals have them expert societies have them you just have to be sensible and and you know a general rule for you is this you know anything you post on social media or send to someone a whatsapp you know that picture presume it's going to be on the front page of the herald sun in a few years time that that's my simple thing in life if i hit send hit post hit submit you have to understand that whatever that is regardless of the security settings be comfortable 
uh, for someone like me who's, who's got some leadership positions, be comfortable if somebody puts that on the front of the Herald Sun <laughs> uh, in, in a couple of years' time. You know, So that, that's my general rule. You just have to think and don't presume things are as secure which is why I'm glad my, 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 my prior career as a, as a DJ in the west of Ireland uh, has been snuffed out completely. No visual memories. It's a shame. I would have liked to see some of those photos <laughs> or maybe hear some of the sets. So Declan, your career involves a diverse mix of operating, consulting, research, mentoring and media as we've spoken about. What's the favourite aspect of your work for you? Well, it's the patience, to be frank with you. And it's back to what we started talking about, Aidan, you know, growing up in a, a GP uh, practice uh, in my house in the west of Ireland and seeing the, the patients, these lovely patients. And so here's a, here are a few important things that we say to our students and trainees uh, all the time. Uh, I remind people about what a privilege it is to be a doctor or a nurse, anyone working in healthcare for that matter. Uh, but doctors in particular, you know, there are some licenses, there are some privileges we have. And, you know, when another person says that they have confidence in you and they're happy for you to examine them, to, to, look, uh, to listen to their heart or to write a prescription for a medication or, or to put a telescope into them, an endoscope, or to make a cut into them, take out a bit of the body like, like we do. You know, what a privilege is that? And so I constantly remind myself of that and others of that, that another person has come in and has agreed for you to allow you to do this. Now, it might be writing a prescription. It's the same thing as doing a radical prostatectomy. I think it's the same privilege. And so it's an incredibly important um, part of life is to reflect on that from time to time and say, uh, I can't believe this, this person has trusted me with their care. Which, by the way, comes with the burden of a patient who might have a complication that's going to keep you awake at night and worry about them. Thankfully, we have few complications in, in our practice um, being high volume surgery, but we have them, you know, and these are the patients that you worry about the most and, and, and who the, the privilege of that patient putting their trust in you, it gets, gets tested to make sure you get them through that experience and so on. But that, that is the single most important thing is uh, the, the fact that a patient uh, has trusted you to make recommendations about their care or administer treatment and so on. And uh, till, till the day I uh, retire from clinical practice, uh, it's something that will never diminish uh, for me the importance of that relationship. I think that's a fantastic point to finish on and a great lesson for all of our listeners, um, as, as you have given multiple times in today's chat. Thanks so much for your time, Declan. Really appreciate it, uh, especially in such a busy schedule. It's been great to have you on the Time Out podcast. Pleasure. This episode of The Time Out was brought to you by Aidan, Ganisht, Chloe and Noreen. Don't forget to subscribe to The Time Out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and let us know on Facebook or Twitter if you're enjoying our interviews or have any ideas for the show at TTO Podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support.